0: Welcome to Genesis. My name is Michael. If uh, you're here uh, for the first time or even just over the past few weeks kind of checking out uh, us as a brand new church. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for coming back. Um, we are uh, heading backwards, so to speak, this past fall. Uh, we started a brand new series called I Want to Live. Uh, and then Christmas came along and uh, we did a series for uh, the Christmas time, uh, Christmas season. And uh, then this past month of January, we've been doing a few different things from Share Your Story uh, to some other folks preaching as well. So today I'm excited because we're going to return to a journey that we actually started uh, last October. Um, a few things that I, I wanted to, uh, to point out to you before we uh, hop into that. Um, uh, this is called the Gospel-Centered Life. Uh, our entire church community right now uh, is going through Uh, this content uh, called The Gospel-Centered Life and asks a very basic but uh, pretty profound question of how can I live with the gospel at the center or the core of who I am? And so we have about 10, 11 life groups uh, this trimester, which just got underway last week, uh, but it's not too late to sign up. And all of our life groups, we've got about 60 some odd people in life groups uh, this trimester, which is pretty awesome uh, considering we have about 75, 80, 85 people who come to church each week. So My math skills would tell me that's roughly about 78.6% of our community connected in life groups. And if you're not, uh, please sign up today. Uh, And it's not just because of this content. It's about building relationships with other people and learning to do life and especially uh, life in Christ uh, together. Uh, So you can be encouraged and challenged and blessed and actually challenge and encourage uh, and bless other people. So uh, for some reason... If this trimester, this coming spring, uh, it's just madness, it's craziness in life and you just can't do it, uh, I will uh, invite you to go ahead and grab uh, one of the workbooks, the notebooks that everyone in life groups has, so you can still be tracking along um, at home by yourself at your own pace. But uh, it's pretty powerful, pretty profound, and so if you can, uh, make space in your life uh, to be part of uh, a life group uh, this coming trimester. Um, this coming weekend, as in this Saturday, um, there's a women's conference that Genesis is going to be hosting, and so men, not allowed. Uh, actually, there's a group of men who are coming to kind of serve and set up and clean and get things prepared, but then you've got to get out, um, and then you come back later to clean and you know, take care of all that good stuff. Uh, but this is a, a great opportunity. Uh, the conference is actually called Come Away, My Beloved, and I believe it starts at 9 o'clock is that correct? I don't know where Lori went. Is that Lori, is that right? 9.30 to about 1 o'clock? Yeah. Okay. So women, I would absolutely encourage you not only to come, but come with a friend. It will be a powerful time of just prayer, a powerful time of worship, and a, a powerful time uh, of teaching as well. So that's this Saturday. If you have some questions, uh, talk to Lori uh, after uh, service uh, today. Um, last weekend, uh, we really put a challenge before a community that said, let's step up and uh, let's get behind um, a brand new ministry called Churches Helping Churches, uh, which the heart of Churches Helping Churches was to put uh, a lot of resources um, uh, in pastors' and churches' hands in Haiti. Uh, They are going to be the folks that long after some of these big relief organizations, after they're long gone, a year or two years from now, the churches are going to be on the ground, and they're going to be the ones that We are seeking to help build and so that they can come alongside people. And so right now we have about $4,500 that we raised uh, last week, uh, which is pretty phenomenal uh, just for the size of community we are. Uh, Some of you were not here last week or were not prepared to give, uh, so please give today uh, if you can, whether it's just cash or a check. If you want to make a check, just write it out to Genesis with Haiti uh, in uh, the memo, and that will go towards... Uh, Churches Helping Churches. One of the things we're in the midst of right now is uh, trying to get some people together uh, who have expressed interest in actually going to Haiti uh, to work with some of the churches and seminaries uh, in the area. And so pay attention to the weekly, uh, which is our newsletter, uh, to find out when we're going to try to pull a meeting together of some folks to kind of just brainstorm some ideas of of how we might get a team of people from uh, Genesis uh, to actually uh, head over uh, to Haiti. I want to live. Uh, this past summer I was watching an Oscar award-winning film called *Wally*, and um, very impactful. And uh, there's a scene at the end of the movie where this big, huge captain who did not know how to walk because uh, he had been sitting down his whole life, basically humanity was on this ship and everything in the ship was catered towards people not having to do anything. I think they were trying to make a statement of what our culture kind of looks like today. And um, at the end of this movie, uh, there is um, uh, there's the people are wanting to go back to Earth. And the computers that run everything and run the ship uh, basically says, if you stay here, you'll survive. And his Oscar award-winning performance, the captain, uh, stands up or tries to stand up and just says, I don't want to survive, I want to live. And I remember watching that over the summer thinking, wow, how many people, myself included, um, are just trying to survive life and are just trying to make it through day-to-day, make it through the circumstances and situations that come up in life and just survive, just get through. And how many of us just kind of live life thinking, man, when this season is over, when this situation has come to pass, then it will be so much easier and so much better Only to get to a new season, you say the same thing, and it's repetitive again and again, if I could just get through this. And you're just in survival mode. And how many of us, if we're in survival mode, ultimately are just missing the life that God has purposed, invited, called, created us to live. And so kind of the idea behind this series was uh, to say, how can we as a people, individual and as a community, uh, make a declaration that we are living, not just surviving, but we are living. And I shared with you way back in September, early October, kind of two thoughts that I was hoping this series would accomplish. First one I just mentioned, that we would not survive life, we would live life. Not just the kind of life I want to live, but the life that God's called me to live. Uh, A life that's in relationship with Him, a life that's just filled with worship and just obedience and walking with God as He created me to walk with Him. Not just individually, but doing it as a community. And just asking good questions of what would it look like for a whole community to make a declaration that we are living, not just surviving, and especially as a church, we're not just going to try to survive and pay our bills and keep our space and just keep everyone happy, but we are going to press in to live the life that God called us to live. And then the second thing, and I hope you will remain convinced of this as well, uh, is that if we live the life that Christ calls us to live, we will reach a multitude of people because they will see the way you live, they will see the way I live, they will see the way we live, and it will be a remarkable difference. And they will ask, what is it about how you live? I see joy, I see peace, I see confidence, I see generosity, I see grace, I see forgiveness, I see mercy, I see compassion. How is it that you can live that life. And when Christians actually be Christ followers and live Christ-like, not Christ-less, I believe that our lives will be such a witness, and the witness of this church would be a blessing to the lives of people around us, certainly this community, but the lives of people we interact with every day. And so in thinking about all of these things, uh, God led me to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's a section in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus preaches to the masses. A few thousand people were there, and he walks through this life, the life that we've been called to live. Um, we looked at, again, this is way back, I'm just trying to refresh where we were months ago, uh, but if you remember, chapter 5, verse 1 through 13, he looked at something called our attitudes, known as the be attitudes And Jesus made a pretty strong statement, said attitude is everything. And the way I I said this was attitude determines actions, actions reveal the heart, and the heart displays the man. Our attitude shapes who we are becoming. And so he laid out eight different attitudes that we are to take on. And if we take on these God-given attitudes, uh, we would be blessed. Blessed is the man who is pure in heart for he will see God. And he walks through eight different attitudes. Then Jesus really walked through, how do we live lives missionally? Meaning, how can our lives actually influence people and culture around us? Many of us live lives where we're very confused as to who we are, and so we settle for trying to be an imitation or impersonation of someone else, because it's better. We don't have to live confused as to who we are Because Jesus clearly said, you are the salt of the earth. We talked about what that meant. And he went on to say, and you are the light of the world. I don't need to be confused. If I'm a Christian, Jesus has made very clear as to who I am, what my identity is. I don't have to stress about, well, who am I and who am I going to be? If I'm a Christian, Jesus said, you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And then Jesus went on in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, not only to reveal why he came, made a statement of, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. Uh, I actually came to fulfill all of scripture. Everything that God has spoken, I have come to bring to fruition or to fulfillment. And then he said something pretty radical. And this is Matthew chapter five, verse 20. He says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that might not be shocking to us, uh, but to people who were listening to Jesus, my righteousness is to surpass that of the Pharisees. If you're not familiar with Pharisees, they were it. They were the models of men of righteousness. If you want to know what it means to be righteous, look at the Pharisees. And then Jesus says, if you want to uh, enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a righteousness that even surpasses them. And then Jesus goes on to teach, and this is where we're going to land today, six examples, as it were, of what it means to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. And Jesus was making a statement here. There's a huge difference of appearance of how you appear to people and actually what's inward, what's an inward reality. The Pharisees looked good on the outside, but Jesus saw through their appearance. And Jesus ultimately is looking to the depth of character person of who we are and who we're becoming. First one, he said, uh, you've heard it said murder. That's not good. But I tell you that if you even have anger in your heart, it's as good as murder. He totally raised the bar and said, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I'm telling you, if you even have anger in your heart, that is as good as murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, if you even have lust for a woman in your heart, that is as good as committing adultery. Jesus continues to raise the standard and raise the standard and raise the standard. They thought if they just followed a bunch of rules, don't do this, do this, don't do this, say this, don't go there, be here, that they would be covered. That was pharisaical living. And Jesus is saying, I'm talking about a transformation of your heart, a transformation of who you are. He goes on to teach about marriage and divorce, because divorce was just as prevalent in their culture and community as it is in ours. And he teaches about the permanence of marriage and God's design and purpose in marriage. And then today, this is where we're I was going to do this in one part and talking about truth and talking about retaliation and uh, talking about loving your enemies, but it was just way too much. So I'm going to break this into two separate messages. And uh, today, the heart of it is uh, being people of the truth. Meaning we don't lie, we don't exaggerate, we don't manipulate with our words. Like what we say, people can count as good, as truth. Um, and I don't think I'll have to convince you too hard that we live in a community and a culture that actually is okay with lying and all of its various kinds of lies from white lies and half-truths and double-talk and double-speak and that kind of thing. Um, So I'm going to pray. That's a lot of background, but I wanted to catch you up on. This is where we've been and where we're headed over the next few weeks up until Easter is I want to live. And Jesus maps out for us uh, the life that he has called, purpose, invited us to live, and today we're going to talk about lying. So Father God, please, I pray that no words that would come from my mouth would uh, be lies or exaggerations. God, I pray ultimately that the words that would come from my mouth would be, God, just you speaking. Uh, And I think as Rob prayed earlier, God, give us hearts just to receive what you would have for us in this place today. God, help us to understand what Scripture says about truth and what you say, Jesus, about lying and letting our yes be yes and our no be no. God, I pray because we've worshiped and because we'll continue to worship and we're gonna see what Scripture has to speak to us, God, that we would be very different uh, as we would leave this place. Because you spoke to us, we heard you and we responded Uh, to everything that you had for us in this place today. So God, please do a good thing for your name um, that we would be challenged and encouraged and blessed by you today. I pray that in Jesus' name. All right, so I'm talking about lying, and I figured it would be good to start with a confession of something I've never confessed publicly but have lied about for my entire life. So this is pretty big, okay? It's hard to say, out loud, because I've, I've never said this publicly, and now this is going to be on video and recorded, but I've lied about this my entire life, okay? I am only six feet, one inches. <laughs> Seriously, that's a big deal to me, okay? I have told people probably ever since the age of 18, so the better part of the last 20 years, that I am six, too because 6'2 is much better than 6'1. And I have, told, I have told myself that for so long that I actually believed for a very long time that I was really 6'2. Like, I honestly thought I was 6'2. And so last night, I measured myself just to make sure I really wasn't 6'2, and somehow I snuck up to 6'2, that all my caffeine intake didn't help me grow somehow. Um, and it's true, I'm only 6'1". Okay? Again, I know it seems silly, but ask yourself the question, have you ever told yourself something and ultimately began to tell other people that it was really a lie, but you have told yourself it for so long that you actually started to believe it to be truth? We do this a lot. I'm giving a silly example of my height, but for 20 years, I've lived under the lie that I'm actually 6'2", or that I'm 6'2", but when I'm actually only 6'1". I thought it would feel much more freeing to say that I'm one, but I still want to be 6'2". <laughs> do you ever do that? You've told yourself something for so long, you know it to be a lie, you tell other people what the lie is, and you actually start to believe it to be true. Silly example, but the point is, how much of what comes out of your mouth is true? How much of what comes out of your mouth is actually true? I wrote it down like this. The mouth gives voice to the heart. So what percentage of your heart speaking is true? If your mouth gives voice to really what's inside... um, How much of what your heart talks, what your heart says, what your heart speaks is true? 100%, 75%, 50%, 25%? Or even as you consider it, you're like, I have no idea because lies and truth get so mixed up and so jumbled together. I don't know what's true anymore, and I don't even know what's lies anymore because they're so intermarried together. My example of 6162. I, at some points, I didn't even know what height I was. How many of us, um, if you were to look back uh, over just just the past few days, how much of what you said was exaggeration? How much of what you said would be considered half-truths? Or what we made up a word uh, for this or a phrase called white lies. Kind of doublespeak. How much of what you said was sarcastic? And by the way, sarcasm is not a form of humor, it's a form of lying. How much of what you said was actually manipulative in nature? Again, manipulation is a form of lying. Again, I don't think I have to work too hard to convince. We all lie, and we do it pretty quickly, and sometimes very quietly, and sometimes it just happens before we even know we're actually doing it, which is actually concerning because that's what's in our heart. It comes out so quickly. So looking back again over the past week, how much of what you said was absolutely true? How many of you actually said something along the the lines of, uh, this project that I'm working on, it's almost done? To whoever your boss or powers that might be, whatever the project was. When you haven't even touched it. But you said, this project is, is almost done. Or you've told whoever, boss, friend, whoever, uh, I've been working on this, and it's, it's going to be in your hands soon, so to speak. Again, you haven't even touched it. Or you say, oh, I've called that person, or I've already emailed that person, and you say that almost as a way to inspire you to email that person or call that person, but you actually have not done it. Or you just say things like, oh, I'm definitely going to do this when you have absolutely no intention of doing that. Or in the church context, uh, how many times have we said something as simple and subtle as, yeah, I'll, I've been praying for you. And you think about it, you're like, no, actually, that's not true. I've not been praying for you at all. Because uh, the natural response, when someone comes up to you and says, oh, I've been praying for you this week, my response is, going, oh, wow, I've been praying for you too. Like, that happens a lot for me, and I have to really guard my, my mouth, like, because, wow, thank you so much for praying for me, and I can't respond by saying, I've been praying for you, but how often I quickly do, and then I will do this. In my brain, standing in front of that person, I'll shoot up a prayer real quick, just so I'll feel justified. So if you see me, like, talking to you, and I have a really long blink, you're getting prayed for right there, so I can be covered. Uh, a friend of mine who was was a pastor who was uh, teaching a Bible study, and uh, a friend of uh, he, was, he was a pastor. He came up and he said, "Hey, Michael, what are you going to be teaching on tonight?" And uh, I just started talking about the text and what I was going to be teaching on, and you know how I was going to be handling the text, and like I gave like a two minute presentation, and he's like, "Wow, that's great!" And then as soon as I walked away from that conversation, I was like, "You're such a liar." You're not even teaching tonight. But I wanted my pastor friend to think that the Bible what we were really doing, we were going to watch a movie. And I didn't want to appear unspiritual, so I made up a story and said, "Well, hey, we're going to be looking at this text and this is what we're going to be doing." And like I before I walked out of the room, God was like from heaven screaming at me like, "Really? Like you're going to be teaching that Bible study tonight. I hope that goes well, liar." And so I went back and I said, listen, uh, this is ridiculous and I feel stupid, but I need to tell you, I just lied to you. I'm not actually teaching anything tonight. We're going to be watching a movie. And he kind of laughed at me. It's like, and I said, I'm really sorry. Please forgive me for lying. Um, I knew exactly why I was doing it because I wanted to appear spiritual, not unspiritual. And he was very gracious and just said, I've done that before and I, I know what it's like. Isn't it amazing just how quickly stories come out of us before we even have time to stop talking and we're just spewing things that aren't true? We're fabricating things or we're exaggerating things and it just happens so quickly. I was asking myself the question, I'll ask you the question, why do we do this? Why do we make up stories? Why do we exaggerate Why do we tell half-truths? Why are we deceptive? Ultimately, why do we lie? And this is how I answered the question. We want to appear before others in a certain way, and the truth does not always match up with how we want to appear. We want to appear before others in a certain way, and the truth does not always match up with how we want to appear. So the lie helps us achieve the perception we want to project. I don't know if that resonates, but I can almost nail down why we lie, because we want to project an image, a persona of us to others, and I know if I tell them the truth, the truth will not match up what I want to appear. Example of my story, I wanted it to appear spiritual, confessing truthfully, or just watching a movie. And we're not even doing like a biblical study on this movie. We're just hanging out watching a movie. I wanted to appear spiritual, so I created and fabricated an entire Bible study like that. I realize many of us would probably say it's just ultimately not that big of a deal. Some of the stories, six one, six two, 2 making up stories about Bible studies, at the end of the day, it's just really not that big of a deal. It's unimportant stuff, so it just doesn't matter. I will disagree with that because words might not matter much to us, but your words, every word matters to God. Okay, I'm going to read a verse really slow. This is Matthew twelve thirty six. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Jesus speaking, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. That's frightening to me because I'm all about a good story. And some of my stories are pretty embellished. So much so where my, Daddy, are you just telling another story? Like my kids, like, Daddy, are you lying? Or is that are you no, it's creative juices flowing within me to the story I've created. I don't actually tell them that, but it's scary to me to think wow, everything that I've ever said, every careless word that I have spoken, God will I will have to give an account to the living God for everything that I have said. If that's true, and it's in the Bible, it's true. That puts a little fear into me of what is actually coming out of my mouth. So if every word matters to God, and it does, again, look at your speech just over the past few days, this past week. Are there any words that you spoke to your spouse that you wish you could take back? Any words you spoke to your fiancé or your boyfriend or your girlfriend that was, at best, careless, that you wish looking back I could I could take back any words if you have kids spoken to your children why did i say that any words that were spoken to your friends your co-workers your housemates your roommates gosh why did i say that why did i say it like that and by the way things like tone and body language count you can say one thing but your tone it might it will communicate something different, or your body language. Are there any stories that you told that if you could go back, well, you actually might want to retell it? Are there any details that you left out that need to be reinserted? Or are there actually any details that were inserted that need to be taken out? Like, I just want us to sit with that verse. I tell you You will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that was spoken. spoken. I'm trying to emphasize a point. Speaking truth is a really big deal to Jesus. Speaking truth is a really big deal to God. We will have to give an account for the language, the words, what we said and how we said it that come out of our heart's and form into words through our mouth. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 33, chapter 5. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all. He's not talking about like profanity and cussing. I tell you, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. And he says this, verse 37, simply let your yes be yes, or 36, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Jesus, if I could just say one thing, he's talking about if you're a Christian, a Christ follower, you speak truth. You do not lie. It's not part of who you are, and it's certainly not part of your vocabulary. An obvious question would be, what is an oath? People would make a statement, and then to put some weight behind that statement or to validate that statement um, as truth, they would add statements like, as God is my witness. So what I'm saying, God is my witness that this is true. Actually, the Apostle Paul in Romans, he says this in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly remember you. And he goes on to talk about how he's been praying for the folks in Rome. As God is my witness, I remember you. So we see that actually Paul takes on an oath in the New Testament, and we actually see in the Old Testament, I'll read a verse, that actually even encourages or permits oath-taking. Deuteronomy 10 verse 20 says this, fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him and take oaths in his name. So the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, there is permission to take oaths in God's name. But if you do it, the Old Testament is really clear, if you actually take an oath, you better fulfill it. Numbers says this, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. If you say that you're going to do something and swear that God is your witness, that this will happen, you better do it. Why? Because you will be judged if you don't. What you say and then what you don't do will be... um, uh, God will... will, um, How can I say this? Um, God's not pleased with that at all. He goes on in Deuteronomy, another verse... uh, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Interesting enough, we actually see God making oaths. And an obvious question would be, why would God need to say something and then validate it with an oath? As surely as I live. Is there somehow, is there something in God that is not worthy of trust? Or is there something in God's character that ultimately is flawed? I just wanted you, because you, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see God making oaths to people. And what God is doing uh, as he is making oath is he's not trying to confirm something about himself. He's trying to confirm faith within us. within us. So it's not because God is somehow unreliable or just not worthy of trust. It's because we are so prone to doubt that God says, you can trust me. I am good for this. I am reliable. I am trustworthy. Okay? A question. If oath-taking was something we see in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament, and we do, then why does Jesus make a pretty bold statement says, do not swear at all? It seems like there's an inconsistency here. Old Testament allows it, New Testament, we see it with Jesus even, and we see it with certainly with the Apostle Paul. So why does Jesus say, do not swear at all? And the answer is, as Jesus arrives in the scene in first century, so by the time Jesus shows up, Oath-taking had become a bit of a joke. And what I mean by that is people were making oaths or swearing by all sorts of things with absolutely no intention of fulfilling their word. So he gives the examples, I swear by heaven that I'll do this, or I'll swear by earth or by Jerusalem or by the hairs on my head that I will do this. They figured if I don't invoke God's name or I don't attach God to my oath, then I can get out of my oath. So Jesus says, swear by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by my head. And Jesus even asked, don't you realize that God has created all? You cannot make an oath without God being present in that. Um, So it seems crazy, uh, but don't we do the same thing? You ever said something along the lines of, I swear in my mother's grave? That's an oath. What's your oath? Well, as good as your mother is dead, you're swearing that how important your dead mother is to you, that you will do this very thing. Or, I swear on all that is good and holy, that I will do this very thing. The rabbis in Jesus' day had created such an elaborate system of oath taking of what was binding and what was not binding. There's a Jewish book uh, called the Mishnah. And this is a Jewish book of oral traditions based on the Torah. And in this book, the Mishnah, there's an entire chapter devoted uh, to oaths. And in this chapter on oaths, there's lists of, if you make an oath swearing to this, then it's not binding. But if you make it sworn to this, then it is binding. The silliness of it even says, if you were to actually swear by Jerusalem, your word is not binding. You're not committed to that. You can get out of it. But if you were to swear towards Jerusalem, then your word was binding. If you just swear by Jerusalem, there's a loophole, you can get out. If you swear towards Jerusalem, the thought being God is in Jerusalem, you're facing God, then your word is ultimately you're, you're bound by your word. Again, seems silly, and I know probably most of us hopefully have grown beyond this, but who created the, the rule that if your fingers are crossed, <laughs> like, I don't know, somehow because these two fingers are crossed, I don't have to do what I said. It makes perfectly good sense to kids and a lot of adults, my fingers are crossed, it's kind of like knocking on wood. Uh, that, I don't know what that is, but apparently <laughs> it means something. So I can look at all of these things that were binding oaths and not binding oaths, and we just change language. We do the exact same thing. So when Jesus says, do not swear at all, he's not talking about cursing and, and profanity and things like that. And he's not talking about oaths that are taken as God is my witness. He's talking about, would you just be a person of your word? Like what you say, it should be good enough. What you say should be absolutely true, reliable, and dependable. What Jesus is speaking about is that words that come from my mouth should just be absolutely truthful no lying and just and no exaggerating, no sarcasm and no other forms of speech that would potentially lead people astray. So we're called to speak truth at all times, in all places, in front of all people. Somehow we think, well, I'm just talking to this person and they're not as important as that person, so I can kind of fudge the story over here, but if I'm talking with this person, I'll have to... No. Truth... At all times, in all places, with all people. Speech that's filled with integrity. Speech that is just honest. Ask yourself the hard question. When you talk, are you believable? Like when you say things, is your audience, is your listener be like, Am I t- should I take them seriously? Is that true? Are they exaggerating? Or does your audience, does your listener say to, think in their mind, it's coming from their mouth, it's absolutely true, fully true, wholly true, absolutely honest and integrity across the board. It's really hard to be honest in a culture that promotes, accepts lying or exaggerating or half-truths. If you're a sports fan, you're probably just as sick of this as I am, but I'm so sick of steroids of how many athletes who say one thing, I never, I swore I never touched this stuff. Only years later, the evidence comes out. Well, I know I said I didn't take it, but what I meant was I didn't take that kind of steroid. Our culture is, it's okay with that. We get half-truths and exaggerations and, and things like that, but if you're a Christian We're commanded to be honest in our conversation and our speech. I'm going to finish with this, and I'm going to go uh, pretty quickly through this, but I want to just ask a question as a way to kind of hopefully wrap things up. How can we live in such a way that our yes means yes and our no means no? no. How can I live my life in such a way that when I say yes, it means yes, not something else? Or when I say no, it, it means no. I'm going to give you five. Number one is, this is basically, how do you live an honest life? A person of your word, absolutely integrity in your speech. Number one, guard the gate of your heart. Matthew 12:34 says this, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus makes pretty clear that what resides in your heart will ultimately flow out through your words. If you desire to see change in your speech to honesty, to being integrity in what you say and actually how you say it, you've got to start filling your heart and your head who you are with truth. I wrote it like this Position yourself ever so closely around the one who claimed to be, I am the truth. So much so that because of Jesus at work with you and in you, truth will spill out of you because of the truth being in you. It's a bit of a tongue twister. But Jesus said, I am the truth. If I want truth to reside in me so that what comes out of me is true at all times and all places with all people. I need to position myself ever so closely to Jesus so that what is coming out of me ultimately is Jesus speaking uh, through me. Number two. Number one is guard the gate of your heart. Number two is guard the gate of your mouth. I understand that if we guard the gate of our heart, uh, that is a great first step but I also know that lies can come really quickly and very stealthily. So I need to guard the gate of my mouth. I like how the psalmist says in 141, set a, this is his prayer, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. Before you speak, ask yourself a very simple but helpful question. Is what I am about to say true? Before you speak, filter your words. Before they come out, is what I'm about to say, is it true? Not your version of the truth, but is it true? And if it's not true, guarding the gate of your mouth means I will not speak what is not true. Too many of us talk too much. we don't check our words before we actually say them. And the thing with words is once they're out there, they're out there. Once I told my pastor friend and created some elaborate Bible study, it was out there. I said I was sorry. I asked him for forgiveness. But once it was out there, the lie was out there. I can't get it back. Colossians says this, do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self, with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator meaning if you're a christian you're being made into the likeness of god because you bear his image and as an image bearer of god lies and falsehood falsehoods and deceit is not possible for someone who is a christian why that's the old self do not lie to each other proverbs 12 I love Proverbs, how it talks about the importance of our words. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Proverbs 12, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. The point, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is no room or place ever for lying. Some people always ask goofy questions, like, well, say Kyla comes up to you and says, Michael, do you think I'm fat? Or, Michael, do you think I'm the most beautiful person in the world? And we ask and we create scenarios like this. And ultimately, that's a really bad question because you're using your words to try to trip someone up. You're using your words to create a scenario, or put someone else in a situation where you're ultimately wanting them to fall. There should not be lying that comes out of our mouth. Number three, guard the gate of your heart, guard the gate of your mouth. Number three, speak truth, but speak truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we in all things grow up in him who is the head, that is Jesus. I don't know if you know people like this, and you might be one of them, so this will be hard for you to hear. There are people who just love to share their opinion. The world must know my opinion. And it's all under the banner of, hey, I'm just, I'm just calling it like I see it. I'm just speaking truth. And you're convinced that everyone must know how you feel about that person, about that situation, or about that circumstance. Somehow your opinion is the most important, and you're going to be the person to speak it. Number three, speak truth, but always speak truth in love. People who do that offer their opinions any moment, all under the banner of, I'm just speaking truth. Your truth ultimately is a form of deception. Ultimately is a form of manipulation. You're using your words to bring someone down, not necessarily to bring them up. There is a time and a place to speak truth. And this is the difference. If someone tells me something really hard, something that I've done, something that was not right, and they come to me with an attitude of just pride and arrogance, and they're just ultimately being a jerk, they can say something that's truthful, but it's just not helpful. And I can't hear them. I see their lips moving, but I just see there's bitterness and anger and cruelty, cruel, cruelness coming out of that person. What Paul says Speak truth, but speak it in love. I've had a lot of people speak into my life saying, Michael, you need to think about this. You need to work on this. Hard stuff, prideful, arrogant, self-serving. But when they tell me that, the difference is I know they love me. And I know they want what's best for me. I know they're not trying to destroy or devastate or hurt me or crush me so they can somehow be lifted up. This is the difference. Be a person who speaks truth, but ask yourself the question, am I really giving my opinion because I love this person and I want what's best for this person? Or am I ultimately making this about me, hurting them so I can be lifted up? If you say things that are true, but you're not saying it in a way that is rooted in love, it's sin. Speak truth, but speak truth in love. Ephesians 4, a great section of Scripture, verse 25, and then verse 31. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. And then verse 31. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Just ask yourself the question, is what I'm about to say my opinion is it really going to help this person? Is it going to benefit? Is it going to help them grow? Is it going to encourage them? Are they going to feel blessed? Are they going to be hurt, devastated, destroyed by this? Again, you could say hard things, but if it's married to love, not divorced from love. And this is totally a side note, but just so you know, emails count as words. We can shoot off really quick emails or Facebook messages to each other, and we can say things that we'd never have the courage to say to someone's face because it's just an email. Emails count. It's written word, but it's still words. Those words, those letters. How many times I've written an email, and I just, I said, the Spirit of God's don't hit return, do not hit return, or do not hit send. If you hit send, you're going to have to send another email saying, I'm sorry, I'm a jerk. How many times have you heard God's voice? Don't say that. Don't say that. Don't send that. Don't hit return. And you hit it anyways. That is truth, divorce from love, and it's sin. Number four, do what you say no matter the cost, because it will be a witness to those who heard you. I love this verse here, Psalm 15, uh, verse 1 and then verse 5. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? The psalmist is asking a good question. Who can dwell with you, God? Who can be with you? And he starts to give an answer in verse 2, 3, and 4, and then he comes to verse 5. Who may live on your holy hill? Verse 5. Who keeps his oath even when it hurts? I remember when we were trying to get into this building and I was talking to the owner, Stephen, and um, I was totally giving him an offer that he thought was ridiculous. And I said, Stephen, I just want you to know that we will take care of your building. We will respect it. We will care for it. We will clean it. We will improve it. We will take on this building and treat it uh, in a way that you would be pleased. And he His response to me was like, am I supposed to just believe you? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) you are. And he was like, no, we're going to have a long contract, and we're going to have this and this, and my lawyer's going to look at this. And I'm thinking, my lawyer, I don't even have a lawyer, so let's not get lawyers involved. And he came back to me and just said, do you really expect this just to be a gentleman's agreement that what you promise that you will do, you will actually do? I said, Stephen, I know that you've had many people who have burned you in the past and said one thing and done. The people that were in here before did that to him. And I said, we will not do that. I didn't say, yes, God is my witness. I just said, you can take me at my word. Our church will honor this facility. And he didn't believe me. But it was amazing when he came and saw this place uh, uh, last October when it was all totally finished and painted and clean and all of that. The look on his face was just priceless. And he didn't utter these words like, wow, you really honored your word. He didn't say that. But his expression was amazement of everything I told him that we as a church would do. We did, and we did it exceptionally well. And this is a pretty hardcore guy who does not smile, does not pass out compliments, and he could not stop smiling of, I can't believe how amazing this place looks. There are too many Christians who say one thing, and then they don't do it. And it is an awful witness. We say that we'll do this, or go there, or be part of this, or I'll give this. And we don't. It's a horrific witness to God. Number four, do what you say, no matter the cost, because it will be a witness to those who heard you. And number five, And this is all under the question, if you've forgotten, how can I be a man or a woman that my yes is yes and my no means no? Guard the gate of your heart, guard the gate of your mouth. Speak truth, but let it be married to love. Number five, or number four, do what you say, no matter the cost to you. And number five is trust God with the truth. Many of us tell lies because we're afraid of what the truth might bring. So we lie in order to manipulate the outcome. Trust God with the truth. I asked Kyla if I could share this story. This happened years and years ago, but she was applying to go on staff with Campus Crusade. And if you're uh, not familiar with Campus Crusade, it's a Christian organization that does great ministry on college campuses. And they do some pretty intense interview, some pretty personal questions. And so they were asking her some questions about her background and things that she had done and all that kind of stuff. And she lied on some of the questions, some like personal questions, because she knew that if she said yes to those questions, they would not accept her. That's what she thought. And so she submitted her application and it had uh, some lies on the application of, no, I've never done that, or yes, I did that, but no, that, all that kind of stuff all under the banner of, I need to lie in order to get my way in. When we lie, it's a way of communicating to God, I don't trust you with the truth. Because if I'm totally honest, it will not work out well for me in whatever the situation scenario is. It wasn't more than probably just a few days went by and God was not happy with what Kyla had done. And so God said, Kyla, pick up the phone, call Campus Crusade and tell them you lied really? That's what you want me to do, God? And God, yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. Calls Campus Crusade, listen, I turned in an application, I lied on some questions, and uh, just, you need to know that. And so then she had to go through interview after interview after interview, because now her character was in question. Well, did you lie here? Did you lie here? Did you lie here? And so she was very forthright, very truthful with all of her answers. And one of the lessons that she learned that taught me a great deal, was trust God with the truth. We lie, we tell stories, we fabricate. Why? To manipulate an outcome that will come and work in our favor. Can I just tell you, it will catch up with you. This is Old Testament, Numbers 32, verse 23. If you fail to do this, and Moses is talking about obedience, you will be sinning against the Lord and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. That's a verse that we should have memorized. Your sin will find you out. If you lie, it will catch up to you. Not only will it catch up to you, but it will haunt you. Every time you see that individual, you will be hit with this thought, I've totally lied to them. I need to get right with them. Or every time you're in that situation at work, I lied to get here. I need to make it right. How do I live a life where my yes is yes and my no is no? Trust God with the truth. I'm going to give you uh, uh, number six, uh, but it's going to be more of a preview, so to speak, of uh, something that Genesis is doing starting in February called Fight Club. And one of the things that we're going to talk about in Fight Club is developing a theology of how to say yes and a theology of how to say no. Too many of us say yes to things we should not say yes to, and too many of us say no to things that we should not say no to. And our yeses get us in trouble because we don't know how to say yes and we don't know how to say no. And one of the things that we're gonna hash out in Fight Club, which is a training equipping uh, for men on one night and then the following night or the following week uh, for women. Rule number one is you're not supposed to talk about Fight Club, so I can't say any more. But <laughs> one of the things we will tack real quickly is how do I develop a theology, meaning a God-honoring way of learning how to say yes and learning how to say no, so that I will not be a liar in my speech, so that what I say, I will do. How do you be a person? Your yes is yes, your no is no. Guard the gate of your heart. Ultimately, Jesus at work in you. Truth will begin to spill Forth from your heart. Guard the gate of your mouth. is what I'm about to say? Is it true? If it's not, don't say it. Speak truth, but speak truth in love. Don't be the opinionated person. Be the person who knows how to speak truth, but you say it in such a way that the person feels loved, built up, they're benefited, they're blessed, they're encouraged, they're challenged by what you've spoken to them. Because it's truth and love. And if you have said something, if you have made a commitment, if you have made a vow, do not delay in fulfilling it. Do it, even if it will cost you. Why? Because it will be a great witness when that person sees you have fulfilled your oath, your vow, your commitment, your your covenant, whatever it was. And number five, trust God with the truth. I'm gonna invite worship to come back up and we're gonna just pray for a bit. I'm hoping and trusting that um, God's already been challenging you and speaking to you about things that you might need to get right with him, stuff you've been covering up or lying or twisting, so to speak. And I would just ask in this time as we would pray, and as we would get prepared to take worship and celebrate communion uh, together, that you would do so with an absolutely honest heart. That you would confess whatever you need to confess to God and then make the decision to repent and say, moving forward, truth, that's it. God, give me grace, courage, and strength to be truthful in all that I say. That you would be honored and people would be encouraged. Father God, please, I pray that we would respond to you, not just to a message, but God, we would respond ultimately to to you, to what you've been speaking. God, if there's things that have been already pressed in on our hearts that we have been saying and speaking and ultimately lying, God, I pray that we would actually confess that and repent of that. God, if there's people that we would actually need to make a phone call to today or get in touch with, to confess stuff that we've just made up, that we've exaggerated or that we have lied. God, I pray that we would. Jesus, I give you thanks that you are gracious and that you can take a a guy like me who has lied so much throughout my life and teach me truth and put truth in me so that truth flows from my heart, flows from my mouth into my words. Jesus, you can transform us at a heart level so that we would be people when we say yes, we mean yes. And when we say no, we mean no. People who are honest, people who are truthful at all times and all places with all people. As we do every single week at uh, Genesis, we celebrate communion as a way to respond to what God, what Jesus has done for us. So we'll worship, and as you guys feel led, uh, come and celebrate communion. We celebrate communion to remember the gospel, that Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he lived a perfect life, was without sin, and went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin, that all that would come to him, trust in him, place their faith in him as God's son, our savior, sins would be forgiven and we would have eternal life. If you've not made that decision, make that decision now and ask Jesus to be your savior, the one who makes you right with God. And as you're ready and you've prayed and you continue to worship, come and celebrate communion and take a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice and say, Jesus, thank you. I remember what you have done for me.